in the middle of the end of a series that we've been entitling Why Jesus after so many different stories, after so many different journeys, after the histories and the backgrounds that we've had. Um, This church has declared quite clearly that we are here to inspire people to live the way of Jesus. Um, And so the question is, after... Some of us who have been church refugees, some of us who have had significant disruption, why are we still following Jesus? Or why is Jesus still important? Any of those questions are valid and um, acceptable. And our favorite, seriously, our favorite moments during this series have been to hear the personal testimonies of you all and your journey and your background. It's been an incredible season of sharing. I thank all of you for uh, those of you who have shared. And today, it just gets better and better because today we have our very own Bill Glenn to come and share his story. Give it up for Bill. Thanks. Hey, everybody, church family. Thanks for letting me come up here and talk a little bit at you. First of all, I want to start this by saying that I have been a Christian for more than four decades. So the, as to the question of why Jesus, there are so many stories. There's not a question about, you know, there's no lack of information there. But this particular testimony began eight years ago when I really felt uh, that I was facing a, had a faith crisis. And I didn't know whether I could or how or should continue my Christian walk. And at the time, my marriage had just imploded. I'd been married 17 years. We had three kids. And, um, but I, it, neither of us were happy, and there are reasons for that that I contributed to greatly, as you will learn. Um, but I was in a fog in a very deep place. And apart from the loneliness and abandonment that I felt at that time, I was more afraid of coming face-to-face with a deep, awful concern I had about myself that I'd known it was there and niggling at my consciousness all those years, but I had always suppressed it, beat it down, didn't want to look at it, ignored it, and and that, I know, contributed to the end of my marriage. For more than 30 years, I'd been plagued with same-sex attraction, and I just knew that that wasn't what a good Christian man should be or do, and so I... I struggled, and I, um, my heart was broken in it because I didn't know where to go or what to do. So as I was staring down the prospect of admitting that I was gay, I just felt there was nowhere to turn because at the time I was part of a Protestant body of believers, and it was a great church. I was part of their, their drama team. I played Jesus in all of their plays, and um, <laughs> they, they wouldn't be very happy with me now, but... Um, But, you know, where a church family should be the safest place to go when you're facing crisis like this, they were the least safe place I could think to go. Because from that pulpit and from so many other pulpits, and certainly from the friends that I had at that church, I'd heard too frequently that what I was was an abomination and that there was no such thing as a gay Christian. So I I was honestly grieving over the prospect of what I thought were my only two choices. And I think I'm pretty intelligent, but in the, in the, just the, the emotional distress and the fog of it all, I really thought either I come clean and I admit who I am and I ditch the whole play acting that I, it was exhausting over those many years and ruin my reputation at the church and just walk away. Or the other choice was continue the charade and keep it stuffed up and just 
go on being that good model Christian or trying to be. I was raised in a small community in Southern California. It was a farming community, very Hispanic, very Catholic, and so was my mother. So that is where we were every Sunday in Catholic Mass, and that established my foundation of faith. When I was 17, Calvary Chapel came to town, and that was really cool because they used guitars, and you know they uh, sang funky songs about Jesus, and it was something I was really drawn to. And I'm glad I was because that's where I really found my relationship with Christ. And I accepted Jesus, and I began my walk as a born-again Christian. Um, as I matured in my faith, I really dove in. I jumped in both feet. I went on missions trips. I joined Bible studies. I led groups. I, as I mentioned already, drama, music, the whole thing. I just wanted to serve. And it felt great being part of kingdom work and, and being a part of a Christian community. What I hadn't anticipated when I accepted Christ and joined an evangelical body was the turmoil that would start to grow inside me over the years. And it was this deep, dark dissonance that just started to gnaw at me in horrible ways because I realized every once in a while, it's that thing you push back, but you realize that what I truly am is not at all in alignment with the Christian theology that I am promoting and trying to live. And so I felt it, it affected my self-esteem. I felt like a fraud. And I think, honestly, I was. <sighs> Flash or fast forward, excuse me, to this fog in, at the end of my marriage. With all of this pent-up angst, my, I finally responded in, in just anger. And I yelled and I screamed and I cried. And honestly, I cursed at my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on a daily basis. We just went at it. And I could not reconcile how I found myself in this place. I mean, I felt really hurt and honestly a little bit betrayed. Had I not prayed enough? Had I not gone to enough Christian conferences? Had I not sang loud enough? And, you know, all of the things you think, did I do something wrong? What is up here? But I wanted answers. Chiefly, I wanted him to answer the question, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? Here I am. I, I try to be the best Christian I could be, but now I'm gay, and what do I do with that? How does that fit into my Christian life? At the time, I was working up in San Francisco, and I live in San Jose, so there's lots of road time in that commute. And almost daily, for several months, <laughs> Jesus and I went at it, and we went to the mat. We just rolled around and wrestled and tussled, and I can't imagine some of those people you know, I was stopped with in traffic, because I literally was yelling and screaming and crying. And they're probably thinking, oh, okay, he cray-cray. So... But um, no one called the cops, and that was good. But on one of these commutes, I was probably tired because I remember being very, very numb a lot of the time. And I, I was finally quiet, and I really think that Jesus saw that moment and thought, oof, he's not yelling and screaming. Time to move in. And it was almost like text messages to my heart and my, my, my mind, my soul, because honestly, out of nowhere came these messages of, of just hope and, and encouragement. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. I knew you in your mother's womb. I will never, never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate you from my love. It was so simple, but honestly, church, that revelation just stunned me because 
I think in my thrashing around and all of the shame I was feeling, I think I really thought I was disappointing Jesus. I thought that, you know, he didn't expect this of me, and I wasn't measuring up. I couldn't keep up. And in fact, it had never occurred to me that my being gay didn't shock him at all. It wasn't like, whoa, whoa, you're gay? Oh, my gosh. And, and I just realized I needed to shut up and listen. So this day began, sorry, this day began the healing, or rather I should say the deconstruction of my faith. And at this point, I want to thank Pastor Kevin, because as I was going through this phase, my kids introduced me to Kevin, and he sat with me and counseled me talked me through things, and he is the one who identified what I was going through as deconstruction, and I am so grateful for his support as I've gone through this journey. Another key revelation was that as a closeted Christian man, I wasn't at all living in the way of Jesus because I was lying, and so here I was preaching certain ways, but honestly giving false witness, bearing false witness. And I, that really damaged me. And so I purposed in my heart in this time that I was going to be authentic. It was time to just ditch all of the play acting and be authentic. So I did my coming out tour. It was really cool. Scary, but I did, went to all the key people in, in my life and told them the truth about me. I wanted them to know the real me. And some of them went kind of badly, but most went beautifully. And I have been so blessed by the response and by the acceptance and by the grace that I've been shown. Um, The hardest discussions were with my kids. I have three and they're amazing. They come to this church when they can. And you probably see my daughter with with a video camera running around here. But my fear in telling them was just evaporated immediately. Their love, support, and just embracing of who I am and of my partner, Dean, has, has just made me go to my knees in Thanksgiving every time I think of it. And then, of course, if, as though it couldn't get better, Dean came into my life, and I have a, a partner who is so loving and supportive and is there for me emotionally every day. So to the question of why Jesus, I hearken back to those road trips where I was yelling, screaming, going to the mat with Jesus, rolling around, and honestly kind of yelling at him, why have you made me thus? And at the deepest level, I think I was so ashamed that I hoped that he would walk away, not me, that he would walk away, and that would be my reason to just say, okay, fine, I'm leaving the church. But instead, he went to the mat with me. He rolled around. He clung. He held me tight as I flailed, just like a panicky child when a parent holds them until they're calmed down enough to realize that they're loved and deeply protected and deeply loved. So why Jesus? He never lets go. Thanks for listening. I'm Bill, I'm so I'm so honored. I'm so honored at your presence and Dean, your your story and your
You are, you are such a gift to me and to this congregation, so thanks for sharing. I really appreciate it. Um, let me pray. <laughs> um, God, I, I want to confess to you that we say frequently as Christians that you are a God of love and that we are loved and that love is the most important thing. Um, but I confess to you, God, I think we frequently miss how wide and how deep and how long your love really is. And so thank you for Bill's story, his courage and willingness to share, to remind us um, in a very visceral and real and personal way how transforming and amazing your agape really is. May we experience that more and more. May we wrestle with you more and more to experience the fullness as much as we humanly possibly can, your great love for us. Help us to do so in your name, amen. I feel compelled to share with you that the testimonies and the teachings were fairly random. We had the teaching set and then we asked people to fit in and in a variety of different areas. And uh, today's sharing that I have with you in, that I'm entitling Crash Theory, um, maybe this is just serendipitous, maybe it's God's will, however you feel so led to, to say it, uh, dovetails with Bill's story just so tremendously and amazingly. So um, every single one of us in the world are wrestling with very, very big questions. And the beginning of philosophy and the beginning of religion begins with some pretty big and significant questions. So, for example, who am I? What is truth? Um, is life meaningful? How shall I now live? And these are questions, if you've lived in philosophy courses or anything around that, you know that these are questions that make up what some people call a worldview. It's a way in which you approach the world. It's this underlying foundation that you don't always think about, but it's what you're rooted in, and it's how you operate into the world. It's the thing that you draw life and meaning and sense from. Even though you wouldn't ever wake up every single morning and go, okay, who am I today? Well, maybe some of you might, um, but definitely on road trips from San Jose to San Francisco and in those particular times. The answer to those questions comes in a variety of different ways, but fundamentally, they come in one significant way that we all participate in, and that is the framework that we call story. We tell ourselves stories, not because we just like drama, though many of us really seem to like drama all the time, not just because we like fantasy or imagination, although that may be true, but we tell ourselves stories because that helps to frame what is reality, what is truth, what is right, what is real. And let me give you an example of some of the stories that we tell. Many of us, in fact, virtually all of us probably grew up with the idea, the historical narrative that Christopher Columbus discovered America. Now, that is not fact, that's not 
history in the purest sense. That's a story that we told that helped to support a certain narrative and an understanding of who we are and how we are to live in the world. Maps are also stories. Like, if you take a look at this and say, this is a map of the world, the reality is it's not really a map of the world. It's one way in which we have depicted how the world is supposed to look. The northern hemisphere is up, southern hemisphere is down. It's very Eurocentric. There's a lot of things about this particular map that tells us some bits of information, but the entirety of the thing is really fundamentally a story that we are telling ourselves. Many of you have heard a religious story, such as this version of the Bible is the most accurate version of the Bible. I only read this version because it is the best version. Now, what fact of that statement can you actually verify to be best, most accurate? I mean, you're going to have to do a lot of work and digging. It's not really a fact. You can't say this is the most accurate version of or translation of the Bible because that's not something that you can really factually check or identify. It's a story that you tell yourself. Why? Because it's something that gives you a sense of truth or validity. It gives you a sense of direction. It grounds you in some sort of absolute certainty from which you can live your life. Um, The investments and stock markets always go up and to the right. This is a story that we tell ourselves. And for the most part, hey, That story perhaps might have been true for a period of time. The reason why you need to recognize that that's a story is because that is not a fact about the universe or the the fact about how economics actually works. It's a story that we have told ourselves for about how we perceive things to actually work in the world. This is a huge story right now. That other party is extremely toxic and un-American, right? Now, I know, I know, you have really good factual evidence for this, so we can totally get into that. But if we step back and really be honest with ourselves, that's a story that we're telling ourselves to justify a particular view or a particular way in which things should happen. These are stories, and we've been telling these stories since the beginning of humankind. For example, the ancient Romans starting with Julius Caesar, began to tell stories about who they were. Caesar Augustus is the son of God. Now, is that a fact? No, but that was perpetuated all throughout the Roman Empire to substantiate and bolster a truth, a narrative, a story about how the Roman Empire was supposed to work. And it was out of that story that Caesar is the son of God. Therefore, Julius Caesar was actually divine. When, his, when Julius died, a comet showed up in the sky. They began to fabricate all sorts of stories around the divinity of the emperors. And that was to regulate and to instantiate in the culture a way for how you are to live, how you are to behave, what place you have within the Roman Empire. So this goes on and on and on. You could tell thousands and thousands of these. People have written about these, about the various stories that we tell. Um, people have talked about brands and uh, companies. Uh, they're just mere stories, like Starbucks and Apple and IBM and Google. You know, these are just stories that we tell ourselves to try to figure out how we are to live. Now, here's, here's the kicker about all this. And this is, this is a huge um, oversimplification, a survey over this kind of way of thinking about kind of anthropology or psychology, but 
as long as these stories, here's the kicker, as long as these stories work for us, we don't ask any questions. As long as they work, as long as life can continue on, as long as my Bible in this particular translation fits within my life experience, as long as there is peace within the Roman Empire, as long as America can still recognize itself as the preeminent country in the world because of our discovery, as long as it works, we don't ask any questions. And that's a key thing about how we have formulated our understanding of truth and in this world. But then, as you all know, as life goes on and as you continue to move, you start to recognize that the story that we've been telling ourselves may not actually be A, true, B, the only story. Recently, Mark Charles and Sung Cheng Ra has published this book, Unsettling Truths. And look at the subtitle, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. And what they are doing within the context of the church is now enlightening the church to that story that you've been telling about Christopher Columbus discovering America, their opening line in this book, you can't discover lands already inhabited. In other words, the story that you've been telling may not actually be true. It is a story that you've been telling. Because there's another story about the indigenous peoples that is completely different from the story that you've been telling. What about this? Here's another way of conceiving the world. And by the way, there's hundreds of these different depictions of how the world should actually be viewed. Of course, Australia loves this one, right? That's, that's the whole point, right? That's the whole point. Is that in the previous versions of the map, that which was up was North America, Europe, and that which was down under, sorry, I told, that was bad. I should, oh, no, bad, totally bad. But by depicting the map in a different way, you start to recognize that you can now tell the story in a different way. And then you start to realize that all cartography is actually biased. Oh, dear Lord. I'm going to totally upset some people. You can talk about your favorite version of the Bible or your favorite translation until you go to a church in Palo Alto that invites this guy to come and speak back in 2014, Daniel Wallace's brilliant lecture talking about how the transmission of the Bible went through a lot of different translations. And, and if you add up and compare all the manuscripts that currently exist, the variations between all of these manuscripts, the discrepancies like, well, this word says this in this manuscript, but it doesn't say that in this manuscript, etc. All of those variants, all of those discrepancies are over 400,000 throughout the manuscript evidence. Which means the reason why we have multiple translations and the reasons why we have multiple iterations of the, of, of the versions of the Bible is because we are doing our best and updating along the way why this version may have missed it. And we recognize that language is a moving target. And so the story that you tell about this version of the Bible being the most important or the most accurate actually may not be be a great story. There's a much bigger story to be told. And of course, this week, if you've been paying attention, 
not everything goes up and to the right. In addition, some of us recognize that the stories that we've been living by are disrupted when we come to terms with who we are. Somebody comes out to you and shares with you a story. You get news from the doctor. You travel to a new place and you discover that the world works very differently than in your little enclave, in your little bubble. You have a really bad experience of shame and condemnation from a religious person or religious institution. Or somehow you just get bored and tired of sitting in the same pew, hearing the same sermons, listening to the same talks over and over and over again. And when you begin to discover any of these or a combination of all of those things, you begin to recognize that these stories that I've been living by, that I've been telling myself, that I've been trying to substantiate and ignore everything else that doesn't fit into that story, these stories that we've been living by actually don't really work. The world is far more complex. The, far more, the world is far more dynamic. And the truth of the matter is far more explosive and, th- than I could have ever imagined. And it, the, the truth of who God is, the truth of the world, the truth of this, this grand experiment called humanity doesn't fit into my story. I need something bigger than that. I need something different. When you get to that particular point where the story no longer works and it falls apart in your hands, you can call that all sorts of different types of things. Deconstruction is definitely one of those. I'm going to propose this phrase by Rabbi B'nai Lappi, crash theory. And when I was preparing this, I ran across uh, some of her work, and I was like, this is it. This is it. Crash theory is a fantastic phrase for this. Because when your story is disrupted, when you believe that sexual identity, a particular sexual identity, is completely incompatible with Christianity, or vice versa, or however you construct that, and you realize that something isn't fitting, it feels like a crash. It feels like some sort of nuclear bomb has gone off. It, feel, it doesn't feel like, hmm, that's interesting. I should, I should figure that out. I mean, how many of you have run into crashes in your life and your story go, oh, that's interesting. No, the vast majority, and I was feeling it again today, the vast majority of people that have crashes don't go, hmm, that's interesting. They cry. Because these stories, again, are not just narrative. They're not just imaginative exercises. They root us in a deeply profound truth that we're trying to live by. And if you uproot me from that story, I'm floating in air. I'm falling. I have no place to land. What am I going to do when that story is disrupted? So I love the phrase crash because I think it depicts what we actually experience. And many of you in this room, and part of the reason why I love this community is we have shared those stories where, where a story was working for us and then all of a sudden didn't work, but then we didn't know what to do. Rabbi B'nai Lapi suggests two things, and I think this is exactly correct and was very commensurate, very, very much in alignment with some of the thinking that I, I've been having over the last several months and years actually about this. Humans tend to do two things. One of two things. We, we tend to polarize in this sense. The first thing, deny the crash and stick with the master story. Crash didn't happen. That information is irrelevant. Of course, that, that's not a true thing. I just have to put my head down and stick with the master story. 
And what this, the, the underlying assumption in that is this, that the story that we've been living by is fixed and unchanging, immutable, and absolute. Because if I ever upset that story, uh, that, that just means everything is relative. In fact, that's one of the things that you might hear in Christian circles, is that apologists and people who argue for the truth of Christianity is that if this is absolute and it's true, and this never changes. I've been in multiple contexts where the, the message and the story of Jesus never changes. And so that's how you have to hold on. So anything that isn't compatible with that story is dismissed. What's the other option? Throw it all away. Because this crash that I'm experiencing, that is the new master story, and I just can't do that other thing anymore. And the assumption under this particular way is that the underlying story is completely false. It's a comp- like this whole stuff about Jesus and the Bible and church and Christopher Columbus. It's all just a bunch of BS. It's all just false. I can't, I, can't even, I can't even go there anymore. And that's why a lot of people, when they run into these kinds of experiences, they, they can't do church anymore. They can't do the songs anymore. They can't even read their Bible anymore. Why? Because the entire thing is just so fraught with that disruption. So these are the two general context, the two general ways in which people respond to this. I have experienced this myself personally. When I've run into these challenges, like, it's like, oh, that, that's, a little, that's a little much. I just got to stick with my story. And then there were moments in my life when major disruptions happened. Like, I don't even know if I can do this church thing anymore. It's just, I just, I got to step away because it's too fill in the blank, toxic, dysfunctional, whatever. You could sum up these two responses in two particular ways. One is called fundamentalism, and the other one is called disillusionment. So if you've ever wondered why now, when you've had these conversations, whether it be over theology, sexuality, science, these are kind of like the big three, whenever you're talking with people or when you yourself are wrestling with these things, I hope some of this helps you understand this, this is not an intellectual exercise. This is... This is so deeply rooted in our humanity and our psyche that to uproot this means something drastic. It's a crash. It's a complete upending of any sense of security, any sense of identity. Remember those big questions. Who am I? What is truth? How shall I live? Are rooted in those stories. You destroy that story. I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what truth is anymore. I don't know how I'm supposed to live anymore. So the reason why this is so challenging for us is because that's, what, that's where it sits in our psyche. That's where it sits in our soul. Okay. Are you with me? Are we the only ones to go through this? No. You could obviously go through history for a long time and discover all sorts of different crashes. I'll just stick with two of them that's connected to our story. The destruction of Jerusalem, which happened two times throughout the Israel's history, were significant enough where it caused the Israelites who were God-fearing, Torah-loving, they loved their Bibles, they loved their God, they loved their religion, they loved their cultic practices, they were in. When the destruction of Jerusalem happened, they had a choice to make. Do I stick now with this master story and continue on, or do I completely reject it? And history tells us that's exactly what happened. In fact, to this day, when we go to Israel and we sit up on the uh, northern side of the Temple Mount and we're in a hotel there, I can hear out my window people who are yelling up at the Temple Mount for the temple to be rebuilt at two or three in the morning. 
To this day, I cannot let go of the master story. It is still true, and it has to be true. Don't let me let go of this master story. And then, of course, there's multiple people who just forgot it all. How could God be good when my central image, picture, symbol of my faith and my identity has now been destroyed and overrun by a foreign power? Are you kidding me? A lot of people, I don't know if this is a great analogy, but a lot of people call the destruction of Jerusalem Israel's 9-11. What 9-11 was to us, the, the complete attack on our symbols that ground us in our identity were attacked. And so, Back then, they did the same thing. And history tells us that's exactly what happened. One story or the other. Stick with the master story or get rid of it all and believe that the destruction is really the new story. And then, of course, most central to our story is the crucifixion. Jesus shows up on the scene somewhere around the mid-early first century, begins this movement, tells these people, the kingdom of heaven is here. Israel's God has now come to redeem the people of Israel. Get ready, something's happening. The kingdom is coming. And then what happens? That rabbi, the one who had talked so much about all of this love and justice and peace and the restoration of Israel is dead. And not just dead, but dead by crucifixion, which is a humiliation, which is to say, yeah, this is what Rome does to people who think that they're somebody. By the way, the early disciples, the small group of people that were following Jesus, what do you think they did? They had one of two options. What did they do? One or two. Did they try to stick with the master story or did they get rid of it all and then all of a sudden realize that the crash was the real story? And the vast majority of them said, this is it. He's dead. We're done. Story is over. Dead Messiah, movement is done. We're not going anywhere. So they went back to fishing or whatever it is that they did. Why are we here then? In your story, <laughs> this is so amazing. In your story, virtually every single story post-crucifixion are the disciples done. Why are we here? Did you ever consider that? After the crucifixion, they're done. The crash is the real story. There's no reason to move on. I'm going back to fishing. Clearly, Rome has won. There is no more movement for the kingdom of God. This whole thing about the promises of God, the, screw Psalm whatever that is that you, right? The, the story is done. So why are we here? You can tell I'm getting excited. Because the third way that Jesus modeled for us after the resurrection, which is a huge piece of the puzzle, obviously, I shouldn't have said that so flippantly. I mean, <laughs> that really is the core reason. But, but what Jesus did in the resurrection was reinterpret the master story with faithfulness to both the old and the new. A recognition that don't let go of your story. Don't let go of that. There's something good, valuable, cherished there. And we also have to accept the fact that Rome exists and crucifixions exist and injustice exists. And somehow, some way, this Jesus movement took those two realities and created a third way. Neither a denial of either one, but a forging forward of a reinterpretation of both. And that is really key. A reinterpretation of both. And there's 
it was really hard for me to just pick one or two stories. Like, I kind of want to spend the next five hours just reading through every single story. And when you understand this, you start to realize, even starting with Matthew 1, he, st- he begins to tell the story through the genealogy of the people. Why does he start all the way back with Abraham? He's reinterpreting what Abraham actually meant in light of who Jesus is. This is all throughout the, our gospel stories. But the one that seems to be most prevalent and the one that seems to stand out is after the resurrection. Many of you know this story. Jesus is walking along with some of the disciples who are again disillusioned. We had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things took place. Moreover, some of our women, uh, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. They're still kind of in disbelief about this. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer all these things and then enter into his glory? So he's having this dialogue with these people who are they're trying to piece this story together, the, the master story in this new experience. How does this, wait, wait, what's going on? And in this next line, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, the old story, beginning with Moses and the prophets, beginning with them, starting with Genesis, all the way, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And what seems to take place, and what we say, and this isn't just like a theological or a biblical argument, what seems to have happened in history, like if you take a look at the historical record, is these Christians, these early followers of Jesus, recognized that there was a new story, a new master story that was being told, that took into consideration the old, what we would consider the old, the original, the Moses story, Torah, prophets, Psalms, took all of that and reinterpreted it in light of the new reality of Rome and oppression and empire. And this is exactly what we see in Jesus, reinterpreting it all. And we see this, this like I said, this is all over. Once, it's like once you see this, you can't unsee it. You have once heard it said, old story. But now I say to you, reinterpretation of old story. And then there's this beautiful summation of the kingdom. And I, oh, this is so good. This is so good. Seriously, you need to read this. Well, you're going to read it because I'm going to put it in front of you. <laughs> Matthew 13, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, uh, he, he's, he's trying to explain all this. And of course, people are confused. That's what happens, by the way, when you have a crash. You're confused. You're not quite sure what the story is going and where it's taking you. That's, what, that's the joy of it. That's the wrestling and tussling and all that stuff. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes, which is a lie. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And notice who he's talking about, the scribe, the one who writes the scriptures. You're talking about the text that's never supposed to change, the unadulterated, absolute, immutable, fixed, never-changing text? Scribes, yes. Every scribe who understands the kingdom, this movement that I'm a part of, brings out something that is old and something that is new. A reinterpretation of the original story 
in a new time, in a new context. Neither denying the old story, nor denying the crash or the new reality. It's brilliant. The Jesus movement reinterpreted and rewrote the master story in a new time with new experiences and new understandings, which is why you have a New Testament. Think about that for a second. Why do you have a New Testament? Why do you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians? Why do you have that? Because in that time, because they already had scriptures, they were rewriting and reinterpreting with new experiences, a new time, new understandings. And so for us, why Jesus? If I were to try to sum this up, why are we following Jesus? Why is this so critically important? Because these questions, by the way, in our time, in, the, in, in 2020, which is still crazy for me to say out loud, in 2020, new questions are going to come in 2021, in 2022, in 2023, in 2024. New questions are going to come when you have new experiences, when you get that news, when you realize that the stories that we've been living by don't work anymore. New questions are going to arise when AI takes over. New questions are going to arise when our world doesn't look the way that we think it looks. And so, as followers of Jesus, it's going, to be, it's going to be easy for us to either stick with the master story and don't let that go. I believe this to be true, or it's going to be easy for us to jettison the story. But in Jesus, in this movement, we get the opportunity to reinterpret both in a whole new way and for a whole new season, for a whole new people, for a whole new time. And in Jesus, we see the model for this. In Jesus, that's why we are here. Again, the disciples should have, I mean, we should all be fishermen, right? If like we're following this movement because they, they, they were done, but we're here because there was something new that was happening and they took the two and melded it together. Here, here are a couple, here are just a couple that I, I put up. The Adam and Eve story is clearly a story about the first people, yes? And then that leads to original sin, and that leads to a 6,000 years old earth. It leads to all of these things. That's clearly the story. But in a new time, in a new place, when you realize that evolution has a lot of facts to it, and it happens to be true, and that the idea of genetics leads us not to a primordial Adam and Eve. Like, what do you do with that crash and this old story? You start to realize the word Adam isn't a proper name. It means humanity. And the word Eve, Chava, means life. Oh, wait a second. Maybe, maybe the new interpretation and the new way of thinking and understanding this is that Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, are not about people, but about humanity and life. And wherever you find humanity, the fullness of humanity, and wherever you find life, there you find the image of God. Clearly, it's male and female. It's clear. And by the way, I will tell you, in the Hebrew, it is male and female. Absolutely, it's male and female. There's no denying that it's a clear male and female. The story that we tell is that it's a clear gender binary. But I will tell you that work that's being done by the trans community is starting to recognize, did you know? Did you know it's clearly day and night? There's no dusk or dawn mentioned in the text. It's clearly land and sea, but there's no beaches or marshlands mentioned in the text. These new interpreters are starting to take the story and reinterpreting the story for a new time and a new place, but it's still the same story, and it's in a new time and a new place. The afterlife, heaven and hell, it's clearly about the, ha- the afterlife, but through theology, archaeology, through recognizing what Jesus was talking about, through rabbinics, through all sorts of different study, this community has come to understand that heaven and hell is really about life before death. 
not about a life after death. And so we are starting to do this work. Bill's testimony is a beautiful example of this third way, of sticking with this true story about you are created in the image and likeness of God, and you are beautifully and wonderfully made. Exactly who you are in the fullness of who you've accepted yourself to be. Is this scary? Sure it is. But what about the slippery slope? Where do you draw the line? All sorts of big, right? Sorry, I'm out of time. I don't know. (laughs) That's obviously the next question, but here's what I would say. That's the next question, isn't it? And we do it all over again. Whenever people throw those things like slippery slope, and I'm like, yeah, let's do that again. Let's take that story and let's revisit that new time. And in so, in some ways, the reason why we're following Jesus today is because, A, it's a phenomenal story. But B, it's a story that leads us and gives us a model for how we get to reinterpret that story over and over and over again in new times and new places, in new situations with new understandings. And that's one of the reasons why we are still here after 2,000 years. And one of the reasons for me personally why I'm still holding on, because no matter where you go, these questions are always going to arise and everybody, every single human being on the face of this planet is going to start telling some stories about what is truth, who are we, why should we be here? And I haven't found a better story other than the Jesus story. So that, my friends, is why Jesus. Don't let go of the story. That's why we spent the first however many years of Spark in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's why after this series, we're going to Ephesians and Luke. We're taking the old stories and we're trying to rediscover them once again. That's why. And we hope, I hope, that this was somewhat helpful for you in understanding where you are in your journey and that you get now to be a part of a movement that gets to reinterpret and rewrite these stories. One of the most important, powerful stories for many of us is this story that we get to do right now, which is to take communion, which is to recognize that is bread and juice. But, but the story that we're telling ourselves, the thing that grounds us, is that reminds us and is symbolic and representative of this Christ who died, who gave it all up, sacrificed, and who loved. And every time we take communion, the bread and the juice, We are entering ourselves back into the story. You are reminding yourselves that you are welcome. Every part of who you are is welcome at this table, as Danielle shared last week. So we hope that as we sing and continue, that you will take the communion, the bread, and the juice, and that you will retell that story once again today. That you are loved, that you are part of the story, that you've been welcomed into the kingdom. That's the story that we're telling. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, as we sing, you are all welcome to partake at the table. If you're able, please stand for a benediction. Okay, Spark. 
Go live out the master's story with faithfulness and truth to the old, to our heritage, to our tradition, and with faithfulness and truthfulness to the new, to the new discovery, the new wrestling, the new time, the new place. Amen.